Today's guest was Jared Kimber, prolific cricket blogger and writer, data analyst and broadcaster. His voice is probably familiar to you from the talk sport coverage of England's recent tour in South Africa. We chatted about the current environment and the impact that has on cricket writing and journalism. Also the pressures and the delights of being a writer on a sport that you love. How he manages mental health and stresses and strains during a touring programme. And also how stats can be used across the game. We finished by reflecting on the work that he has available now in terms of new podcasts, but also how going forward cricket is going to change as a result. I enjoyed chatting with him and I hope you enjoy hearing the outcomes of it. Jared, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, we've got with us today someone who describes himself on his Twitter bio as a frequent podcast guest. <laughs> so, um, we've certainly got someone with experience in this area. Now, the last time I heard your voice prior to today was with Talk Sport on the uh, on the most recent England tour. Just to start off with, what's that environment like to work in? Because there's a few characters in the comms box. How have you adapted to that over the years? Yeah, it's been quite interesting. I don't think, um, other than maybe Mark Butcher, I don't think going in and maybe Harmy a little bit, uh, I really knew anyone that well. Um, so, you know, suddenly you are with a lot of former players, some of which you wrote about. Remember Matt Pryor quite early on, um, ex- explaining me to someone someone else had said something nice to him about me and he said yeah he's the sort of guy I hated when I was uh, playing he goes but I quite like him now um uh, you know it, it does show that when you actually get to meet people things change a little bit um but yeah look it's it you know TalkSport is um a little bit different to BBC and some of the other uh, radio environments around there we have a lot of people coming through so um and there are very few uh, you know, like most commentary services, there are very few non-cricketers. So you have sort of, you know, people like me, Manthorpe, Andrew McKenna, um, uh, all, who all think about things in a certain way, and then you have the ex-players in another way. So it's uh, quite a good little mash, I think. But it's it's a lot of fun, certainly. Yeah, I found it worked. It worked well. Of course, there's the traditionalists um, that always think of Test match cricket as as TMS so whenever someone else provides the commentary there's always that little bit of reluctance because we we're expecting certain things but um yeah i think particularly on this is last winter things rubbed along really well what's your what's your role defined as when you're on comms with these guys because if we've got say Darren Goff giving his perspective um based on on his experiences on the pitch, um, are you coming at it from a, a data perspective of giving a bit of colour or a bit of everything? Uh, I think originally the, the idea was to have someone different than a traditional scorer. Um, you know, two, two of my close friends, you know, Andrew Sampson and, and Andy Zaltzman are both brilliant at that job. Um, and, and so I was part of the consultancy team. We put the TalkSport commentary team together. And I sort of said, look, I don't know what you do with that role, but I don't think you need a scorer specifically. Um, you get fruit machines in the commentary box these days, and the fruit machines has incredible um, scoring. You always have someone with a laptop around who can look stuff up. Uh, so and I think that they just went, well, maybe what we need then is someone uh, who will 
I don't know the, the, even the, the correct term, but I, I think they wanted someone who was a good broadcaster, uh, so, you know, who, who was used to being on air, uh, who also uh, could add something that maybe no one else could, and, and uh, I, I think I sort of just fit that role quite well in the end. It was funny, when I, when I did the original consultancy, I sort of looked up at the board and, and said, well, I, I think I've ripped myself out of a job here, guys. Um, and uh, they ended up, I think, thinking the opposite, which was, you know, anyone who's thought that much about cricket commentary maybe has something to add. So I kind of look at it as, you know, if, if Goffey says something along the lines of short broads better against left-handers than right-handers, well, is, is that true? Um, and what specifically does that mean? And has that always been the case? And then usually what you find is if you give that to an ex-player, they can then um, sometimes look into it deeper. And, then, and sometimes it's information they don't have. And then <laughs> I think the Telegraph called me recently part, uh, part uh, stats man, part uh, uh, wildcard. Uh, because, you know, I kind of see it as, as my job to, um, to come in and uh, give extra information and also, you know, add, add to the jokes and, <laughs> and everything else. So, I mean, I, I honestly would not know how to explain that job. But to be fair, I don't know really how to explain most of the things I do in cricket. It's just that people keep paying me to do them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, can, I can see, yeah. So um, I think that's, that's quite apparent from a little bit of a scan of your, of your work history that there's been um, moves all across the place in terms of what your your designated role has been so if, if we think about a lot of people listening will be familiar with your work on ESPN Crick Info uh, and sometimes we work with um with a few journalists in fact on our um our own board our, our one of our founding members at Open Up Crickets John Northcroft who writes in the Sunday Times of a football the football correspondent and he had a fairly if you like traditional route to it, that there'd be a university degree which is based around essay writing, then uh, a formal qualification, working his way through regional papers, then going on and going on. But um, looking at, at at something that you'd written, your route to journalism wasn't through perhaps a conventional method. It was just through. Uh, would it be fair to say a volume of writing and just getting yourself out there? Yeah, I, um, I never finished high school, uh, let alone went to university. I never worked for a newspaper. I still never really worked for a newspaper uh, 13 years into my career. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a bizarre sort of path towards it all. I, um, I was uh, trying to become a filmmaker at a film production company in Melbourne, uh, and I started blogging basically because when you do film production, you get, you know, uh, someone gives you a lot of money and then you don't get another job for about seven months after that, unfortunately. Um, and there was a lot of that, so I started writing about cricket uh, when, when that happened. And, yes, it was just a blog that I started. I sort of, you know, ended up getting uh, work through the mainstream. And sort of everything I've done, uh, you know, one way or another, has been through a collection of me just going, yeah, I wonder if I could do this. Uh, maybe I should try that. Um, you know, it wasn't really till I got to the, the very end of, you know, the last couple of years of my career where I started getting um, headhunted. Um, you know, by TalkSport and uh, uh, also by cricket teams. Uh, you know, I've never applied for a job to work for a cricket team, for instance. It's usually them just saying, uh, you know, are you free? Would you like to come work with us? But up until that point, everything I'd ever done in in, um, in my career had just been, I'm just going to try this and uh, uh, because I'm interested in this and I'll, I'll give it a go. And, you know, when you're passionate and you throw yourself in at these sorts of things, uh, it turns out that that's, you know, a fairly good match. Uh, I think a lot of people try and get 
especially into dream jobs, and these are dream jobs. Uh, they try and get into dream jobs by copying what everyone else has done, whereas more more often than not, it's either spinning what everyone else has done or coming up with something completely new. And luckily for me, I have a very high work ethic and I get bored a lot. So I just keep changing what I do and uh, going from, from idea to idea, and uh, quite a few of them have stuck, luckily. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm fascinated by the routes into the the top of sports journalism. We get increasingly in this day and age, uh, particularly in sport like like cricket, where you do have a lot of players who've had a a, a good educational background, and it is a it is a, supposed to be at least a thinking person's game. So you've got that area of it where you'll have your Michael Athertons and so on who were writing particular bits, but there is definitely that 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 area where it can be filled with people who do something a little bit different and i suppose when i've when i've read your stuff and i'm listening to you now i've been thinking that it would it be fair to say that because there hasn't been any any external pressure on you when you started that perhaps you're in this you're in a, a specific role where an editor wants something because you've been able to be a bit freer and throw things out there yourself that's helped to cultivate a style yeah, well, I was a screenwriter, so you know the the only sort of secondary education I ever had when I was when I was twenty five and went to film school. To be fair, my uh, the professor of my film school did take me aside one stage and said, "I don't think your um, your main skill is going to be writing," uh, which is quite funny because about two years later I was a professional writer. But um, uh, that's kind of the only training I've ever had, and even then, uh, my film school was quite loose, so a lot of that was self taught. So. My writing to begin with came from this completely different um, area. I remember having a conversation with Gideon Haig and he was saying something. Um, he was saying, how do you even know if I, who I am if you, don't write, if you don't read any cricket books? And I was like, but that's why I don't write like anyone else in cricket as well because I haven't come from that same sort of background. So, yeah, no, I think you're 100% right. I, I look at blogs and they don't really exist anymore, but when they did exist, as uh, if, if you look at university and, and proper formal education through newspapers and those sorts of things, that's really, um, you know, a basketballer who's come up through high school, university, and then gone on to play in the NBA. Whereas the, the, blog, the blogging side of thing is really street basketball. You kind of learn your own method to survive a little bit. Um, there's no one really there to coach you. Uh, it's, sometimes it's hard to take blogging and put it into a major organization because that doesn't really fit um, but what it does do is it allows you to find parts of your game that you wouldn't maybe find with with a coach a coach said you know has a look at you and this is what editors do they have a look at you and you're that guy whereas if you look at my career I, I started writing completely crazy nonsensical you know madness on my blog um, I then went from there to writing 7,000 word features for ESPN um, I, I went from uh, I took that and started writing about data, um, you know. So just just on those three things, you don't always get those opportunities um, if you come through the system. But when you when you're a bit like me and you're just always improvising and always looking for new ideas, you eventually sort of get hired as that person as well. Mm. And so you know the amount of times the other crack info writers are like, oh, we wish you had we had your freedom, but. They, they were hired as juniors and worked their way out, whereas I sort of came in with this huge sort of following um, and was already known as, you know, I, I mean, 
when I first got press accreditation in in in, in England, <laughs> they literally sent a fashion um, advice through because they were worried that I was going to dress so poorly I would uh, I would um, cause problems in the press box. Uh, that's how sort of wild they thought I was, um, and and that just tells you how different I was than, than most other people who come into that environment. It's a bit different now because you know there are some people who become you know we've had athletic writers. Um, uh, who've basically been Twitter people, so even more random than me. Um, but when I, when I came through, it was it was not a normal job path. No, no. Uh, and just to say, what would be your uh, your attire of choice in the press box? Well, I wore a trucker cap for about six, seven years. Uh, so I remember there was li- literally a conversation about whether I should be allowed to wear a trucker cap in yeah. the press box, uh, while while a bunch of uh, old men wear, wore their ridiculous hats themselves. But those hats were okay; my hats were not. Uh, well, I, I also wore cricket shirts in the press box, which was a big no-no. Um, but we had a video show at the end of the day's play, and uh, you know, during that, I had to wear. Um, I had to wear a different country's shirt all the time, so it just became easier just to wear the cricket shirts in. But there are lots of journalists that didn't like that at the time either. So, uh, look, it, you know, the, the world changes. Once you've been there long enough, you become the new normal. Um, and I think that's definitely happened. And to be fair, the cricket writing fraternity has changed a lot since I started. It was a quite a negative uh, uh, older club when, when we when I first got in, when a few of us first got in. It's now a lot more fun and a lot different than it used to be. Mm. And you know that hopefully that's how cricket is moving as well. It shouldn't be uh, a bunch of people tutting. It should be people enjoying the game in many different ways. And and I think that's what the sort of newer generation of cricket writers and hopefully tr- cricket com commentators and certainly people on, on twitter who follow cricket that's certainly what they do yeah yeah uh, spot on now is it too simplistic to say that that change perhaps in who writes about the game is running parallel with how the game is changing itself in that we've got in a lot of parts of the world very t20 centric um moving away from the, our beloved test matches and over here in england are loyalists of the county championship and we're almost looking like in some ways the sport is like rugby where you you could almost say they're two different codes in the white and the red ball um when you were getting into making your name and becoming more high profile in what you were writing was there was there a particular part of the game that you were most interested in whether it be the five day four day or one day game or particular area within any of the disciplines well i i just to follow up on your point they're definitely different codes they're they're uh, t20 and test cricket are not even the same sport and they'll get further and further apart one day cricket will be roughly in the middle i i look at them more now like in in forms of uh, race cars you know, where one's more like a, you know, a hot rod or a drag show, um, and the other one's more like the Dakar Rally. Um, but uh, yeah, I well, the reason I broke in really is because I was probably the first ever um, truly international cricket writer. Up until I sort of broke in, everyone wrote about their team, and you write about the opposition when they played your team, mm. and you might dip in a little bit more uh, with World Cups and cricket info writers were maybe slightly more international, but people still sort of had beats that they covered. 
Um, and because I came from a blog where I was the only person working on the blog and I loved international cricket, I covered everything. Um, I covered the Indian Cricket League, which was the Rebel League before the IPL. Um, and I also covered Bangladesh tests. Um, so I sort of broke in that way, uh, which is, you know, this sort of wider view, which meant that when people were looking for someone to write about Chris Gale or Bangladesh or a new T20 competition, I got all those jobs because I was the person sort of, sort of doing them. And that's kind of where my love comes from, really. Um, uh, for me, uh, it's I love Australian cricket, but I, I grew up as a Victorian cricket fan, really more than Australian cricket fan. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as I got older, I loved um, Pakistan um, and you know players from from random countries. Martin Crowe was a huge hero of mine. Uh, you know, uh, Verinder Sehwag went on to be a huge hero. I, you know, love bowlers from around the world. So for me, it, it it just made a natural sense. It just that I didn't it didn't occur to me at the time that no one had ever written about all 10 test-playing nations as they were at that time. So I just sort of stumbled onto an open market. Um, but you see that a lot. It's, you know, there are a lot of open markets out there, uh, you know, within, you know, the industry that people just don't cover and people haven't really thought of yet. Um, and I honestly believe that that's a, that's a huge way to get into the industry. So that was my way. So it was kind of the opposite of, 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 of specializing. I sort of generalized as much as anything it's just that no one before me had done that mm, yeah so I, I have a thought in my mind of yes it's a it's england versus uh, for example south africa and you're going to have this stock of guest commentators who are almost representing that country they'll go away the next series you'll have say some west indians some australians or so on so that perspective of going where the cricket is rather than where a particular team is would have been really different at, at that point now one thing that's hard to get across to people um, whether it's from a, a broadcasting journalist perspective or from playing the game is how difficult the uh, the travel and the the schedules are uh, virtually and not virtually every player that I've ever spoken to who spends time on the road so that would be any pro um, to, to varying levels all the way up to the the international players who hardly ever seem to be at home to anyone who works in cricket that where they have that travel would always reflect that yes it's a brilliant opportunity to see these parts of the world but there is a trade-off in that it is difficult and it is isolating from your your home comforts how have you found it because you've gone all the way around the world in so many different guises and, and, and at different times, perhaps, as you've said, at points where other people weren't particularly interested in, in, in going to that area at that time. How did you manage, how have you managed to get the balance between the enjoyment of that whole experience, but also being away from, from things that you, you, you would like to be with? Yeah, it's, um, I think cricket, tennis and golf are, are almost three sports apart. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to travel and cricket, probably is the most um, obscene, only because you know you could play two golf tournaments and perhaps have a week off and fly back home. Whereas obviously in cricket, you're generally away for anywhere between three and nine weeks, um, depending on the kind of tour it is and, and and the schedule, all those sorts of things. If you're working at the level that I work at, you know you can't afford to just travel back for three or four days. Um, for instance, Darren Goff and Mark Nicholas during the um, South Africa tour, they both flew back to England for maybe three days, four days. You know, I just can't afford to do that. It would take too much of my, of my money out. So I end up being away for for two months um, at a time. Um, I think that's my most. Maybe my most was actually four months. So we had the uh, Australia India. Um, 
India toured Australia in 2014-15, and that led into the World Cup. So I was in Australia for four months then. Um, so, you know, it gets a bit crazy. I remember having a conversation with Wright Thompson, the uh, ESPN writer, maybe the best sports writer in the world, and he was saying to me, yeah, I'm away for 250 days of the year. And I turned to a friend of mine, um, who, uh, a friend of mine's girlfriend, another writer, and I said to her, that's crazy. And she was like, yeah, you guys were away for 220 days last year. Um, and you, you don't even you don't even sort of notice it. You're, you're, you're hoping to get your next job. But it, it is it does take a lot out. You do notice on cricket tours, and I don't know what the other sorts of I know I, I don't travel on football tours or or, or other sports tours uh, very often, so I'm not, I'm not as sure. But I think with cricket tours, you really do see there are people who just can't handle it, who aren't built for it, and then you see there's the sort of road warrior people who just absolutely pump away and and would be happy being on the road 365 days of the year. I'm probably more towards that end. Uh, I'm very comfortable, you know, making myself home in a new hotel. Um, I'm a big fan of the app Zomato, um, uh, which uh, which allows you to find uh, really good restaurants no matter where you are. Um, you know, it's little things like that. Um, I, I love listening to, uh, like, you know, going to Cape Town and then looking up Cape Town musicians. Um, but the very basic part of it is that you, you know, for me, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a father, so you know, husband and father. It, it's that the relationships are back home and how you deal with all, all that sort of stuff. Me and my wife don't contact each other every day. Uh, well, we're in contact every day. We don't talk to each other every day because uh, we find trying to put a schedule on whether to, when to call each other just makes it almost impossible from either end. Uh, we've got a five- and a seven-year-old boys, and you know they're hard enough to wrangle at the best of times. My wife's mostly trying to look after them. But it's not, it's not an easy lifestyle. I've seen a lot of people break down. You can usually see it uh, quite early on. Uh, I had a friend recently who uh, who basically, after maybe a year of this sort of lifestyle, um, was then off work for about four months um, because he couldn't because he couldn't handle it. Had a bit of a breakdown. I've been on tours with people where you know you you, you kind of have to ring their hotel rooms regularly to make sure that they're okay. Um, you know, I, I always say that even I have to manage my wife who's back home a little bit. I know that every there's you know if I'm away for more than a month, I know that some stage in that month she's going to have uh, an episode back home that, that I'm going to have to deal with. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of that sort of stuff. And, and you also have to realize that people tour completely differently. Like just a very simple thing. If you, if you look at TalkSport, that was my last tour. You know, we've got a, a sound engineer, Adam, who's one of the best people I've ever worked with as far as, uh, you know, being professional. He doesn't like to have breakfast with people. And it's quite clear he doesn't like to have breakfast with people. Whereas Goffy, Goffy loves to have breakfast with people, right? So you have to know to a certain situation that unless the all the tables are free and Adam's at a table where there's a, that's the only other seat, you basically let him have his space. Whereas with Goffy, you want the opposite. If you see Goffy come in, you, you almost want to wave to him so he knows he can come over and, um, and, and have breakfast with you. It's little things like that, which... I suppose to the wider world doesn't even make sense. But if you're traveling for, you know, 160 days, 200 days of the year, all those little things really, really matter. Um, And, you know, when you get a new writer or a new broadcaster on on the circuit, you know, one of the most important things is, you know, making sure that uh, they're aware that they can come out for drinks with you and they can come out to restaurants because when you're away, uh, it's hard. It's a really hard thing. Um, So all those sorts of things really matter. Mm. It's, it seems like having, like you've mentioned, having 
a building a new routine and actually trying to connect with the place that you're in seems to be a really good good tip and a good strategy um, and I think for anyone in, engaged in a, in a new environment is to have some kind of plan about how you're going to deal with it because we talk about this a lot with mental health in generally that in general sorry that people will um, will often, in, often encounter difficulties and people will respond to that when if we take it a few steps back and say there, there will be difficult times to come. Is there something that we can do to be resilient to those difficulties? And things that you've mentioned there, even though they're in a, a, a setting that a lot of people listening won't be in, you can pull them out and say, well, actually, yeah, there's the things there about knowing it's going to be difficult and then not running away from that, but saying, I'll try to do this, can give you something towards being able to deal with it rather than hiding from it. And then when it hits you, it can be can be really difficult. And we hear that from both players who high profile examples having left tours with with breakdowns of their mental health but then of course there'll be the people who whether they're working as a, in sales they're working in whatever job who find that thing very very stressful and very difficult so i think yeah even little bits and pieces where we're just saying we can we can plan with that makes a really big difference and i suppose that leads to my my next question that how, when you when you're observing the the players and the the squads and then their their support staff and the whole package that the international teams have, is it is it something that you look on and you see you see them in terms of um, this must be the time of their life or is it easy to see from relatively close quarters how on top of it. It, it is for them or, or does it just or does it seem like it's um it's something which they're they're enjoying and they're taking everything from look i mean it's i remember when the england team were losing in the west indies in the test series um and uh, you know I, I i'm not that close with a lot of the england players but there's a couple that i know and there's one that i sort of bumped into on the street and he was struggling um they were losing a series that going into they probably would have been favourites for them would, would have assumed that they would have won um, West Indies have been brilliant at that point in, in, in the series and you know he his family were out there was you know a, a family problem not not a big family problem but you know I can't remember that they had a nanny that they had hired who hadn't turned up or you know whatever it was you know very basic thing the hotel rooms that, that ECB got them weren't, weren't ideal it, it could have been anything like that and, you know, he was a normal person traveling away from home. And then on top of that, he had the pressure of England fans coming up and asking him why he was losing all the time. Um, we stayed in the same uh, team at the hotel as the team in Cape Town this year. And it was an absolutely packed hotel with a tiny little bar and a tiny little pool area. And almost everyone in that hotel, maybe 80% of the people in that hotel were there for the cricket. And the cricketers come home from work and they've got the, you know, uh, they've literally got drunk fans who've been in the sun all day completely baked having a go at them they have n normal problems and they have abnormal problems um and that that's no different from from anyone else uh, that you come across and um theirs are just heightened sometimes so sometimes they are having the absolute time of their life and sometimes they have a bad day at work and then have to come home and the people who are at the ground are still there so it's it's not ideal and then you end up in you know the other situation which is a which is a real problem in, in India, uh, where they all sort of, sort of end up trapped in their hotel rooms, not being able to go out. And that's not a healthy state. I mean, you know, 
some people like to be in their hotel rooms more than others, but no one likes to be trapped in a hotel room, as we're all finding out now with the coronavirus. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And those things that, yes, I suppose outside of when we're talking now, we would, we as sort of, as, as everyday people, would take for granted the ability to... To, to switch off after work to be able to have that physical distancing but then yeah it, these these top players will then be having someone pretending to be bringing room service knocking on the door went to the selfie or all this kind of carry on so yeah that's but even, it. even simple things like so you know if you have a bad day at work and you're a salesman or, or you're even a cricket writer or anything like that and you're traveling you can literally go down to the bar have a drink but you know get a meal and have no problem you know there's no England cricketer in a hotel that uh, like the one we're in in Cape Town, who can go down to the bar and relax without someone coming up and tapping them on the shoulder. Um, I mean, but Joffre Archer was with his, um, I think it's his girlfriend, I don't think they're engaged yet, um, but he was with his girlfriend at the at, at the beach, uh, sorry, at the um, the hotel pool, and he was trying to relax. I think he just might have just found out about his arm, and he was obviously, you know, a bit agitated, and, like, people just kept coming up and asking for selfies. And, of course, you know, he, he, he sort of put them off and did them all in one group, um, and he, he was... Very lovely to everyone, but you could also tell he just wanted to spend twenty minutes in the sun uh, with his girlfriend. Things like that, you know, uh, d- doesn't really work for professional sportsmen. And when you're away for a long time and you're injured and your team's lost the first test, you know, it's all those sorts of things start to build up before you think about if you were travelling with thirty of your work colleagues. You, know, you don't have a perfect relationship with all of them. You may not always feel like you fit in. You know, all those sorts of normal things. It's, it's a weird experience. Uh, you know, a weird life that the cricketers have um and we don't always respect that but you know i we see why um some of them snap yeah yes of course um now thinking about the 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 area that that um we perhaps heard most most from you in the, the talk sport coverage this the area of the statistics and the data analysis now i was looking at something earlier work you've done with with scotland on data analysis and how that can be used in um in a squad and helping to prepare players for for, for what they're doing in the future i think my question to you jared would be how mu- how much data do you need for it to be a worthwhile exercise? Because I'm thinking here of, say, at club cricket level, people are looking to get a little bit of an edge in some way. Is there enough info available on, you say, play cricket or my cricket in Australia to be able to do some analysis to get something worthwhile to share with a squad? Uh, geez, I haven't been on play cricket or my cricket in a while. My guess would be on those websites, perhaps not. Um, but uh, on a real on a real um, system, then you know if you've got a proper scorecard from you know all the scoreboards from the last year, then you've got all the ball by ball um, information that you need to to get some real ideas. You should be able to work out, for instance, if there's a particular batsman who might be coming in too high. Um, you might be able to work out if the bowlers, especially in limited overs cricket, are bowling in the wrong overs. Uh, you know, little things like that. But yeah, it, it obviously gets a lot different. You know, I can go to the Scotland players and literally say, um, "Look, you're you're going at 11 runs and over in T20 cricket against left-handers, and you've never tried bowling around the wicket. Why not? If you're already getting smashed over the wicket, surely bowling around the wicket and working on that is something worth going for. You're not going to get that in club cricket because generally um, those sorts of things aren't." Um, uh, looked at, although with Crick HQ and those sorts of new apps coming through, you know you might have you might have a system where that sorts of that starts to happen. But you know there, there's always information out there. Um, you know, uh, simple. Okay, and one that you'll be able to get from scorecards would be dot ball percentage. 
So you might have a player who is very good at hitting fours but uh, faces a lot of dot balls. And it may be after a string of dot balls when they start to struggle, which is generally how cricket works. So, uh, you know, you may be able to work on a ball, uh, on a batsman that way. And, you know, conversely with a bowler, you might be able to say um, you're actually going for a lot of boundaries, but you're bowling a lot of dot balls. So is there something that you're doing in your bowling that doesn't work? It, it's all That's all possible with, with, with stats. It just depends on uh, how much of a nerd you have willing to go through your scorebooks or whether you can have these things on a computer. If you have them on a computer, then that's obviously a lot easier and you can just run algorithms and spreadsheets through. And, and there are things that could help club cricketers. But, it, you know, it, it's not a natural system that we have. I always say that, we, you know, in cricket we have one of the greatest sort of um, – databases naturally and then uh, we don't do much with it these score books just end up in a pile in the corner uh, and no one ever does anything with them for years whereas in actual fact that that's where all the information is that it, they're far better than the actual scorecards that we end up uh, looking at mm. um, when you're working in that environment say with with scotland or you're providing something for for broadcast are you a bit like your 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 writing left to sort of your own devices and to pick out things of interest or will there ever be a steer towards particular areas that they want you to to mine for information it really depends on the team i think with scotland they brought me in because i was a t20 specialist because i'd uh, worked with st lucia stars uh, melbourne stars plus done consultancy work with a few other t20 teams so i think for them they sort of thought well he's a t20 specialist let's get him in to think just about t20 cricket um and then what you might get is you might get the coach or the captain might come up to you and say, these are the kinds of things I've thought about. Can you have a look at them? Or um, quite often you get a player come up and just be like, do you have any information on this? Or do you know more about this player or, or something like that? So the, the, you sort of what I try and do um, is just say as visible as possible. So I spend a lot of my time working either in the bar or in the lobby so that the players have to kind of walk past you so that they can come up in a relaxed environment. And they always pretend the players are funny. They always pretend, oh, yeah, I don't really I don't really believe any of this. Well, but, you know, what have you got on me? Yeah. <laughs> and next thing you know, 40 minutes later, they're like, oh, why is this taking so long to load? I was like, well, my database has, you know, 1.8 you know, million balls in it. It's going to take a little while to get that information up for you. Um, but, yeah, you know, so it does work from a, a, a very different ways. And, and different teams are very different too. Melbourne Stars kept me very much at a distance and kind of they came up with a template of what they wanted me to do. Um, and by the end of the season, I'd kind of changed that and, um, into something that I thought was of more use to them. Whereas, as I said, with Scotland, they were like, you've done this. This this is what we want. We want a professional T20 analyst to come in and help us with T20 cricket. Um, but it's it's a very weird world because, you know, you, you get a lot of older players who have got to their point in their career never having dealt with an analyst before. Uh, they don't see the point of view. Mm. Um, so yeah. you spend a lot of late nights in bars trying to explain why this information could actually be helpful to them. Yeah, I see a parallel with elements of of psychology or or mental skills and fitness that often people will not engage with it because their excuse is oh i've got to this point without needing it and and there'll often be this thing of like yeah what you've said there about someone going oh well i don't really believe in it but and then you go well okay i can actually give you something here that would would help with it so um each of the t- each of the different settings you've said there it just depends on what they um what they want from it um, in terms of what you've discovered, I guess, over all these years, what do you think is the 
the most important thing for a, a team to be considering about the opposition? Because we speak a lot about saying you concentrate on what you do, do that well, and a game ca- takes care of itself. But if you were to go in and just had a few minutes with a group and were wanting to point them towards a particular area, where would you focus as a, as a rule of thumb? Well, the most important thing that you need to know before, I think, almost anything else is that due diligence is an important thing. So the more you can know about the opposition, I think, the better. That doesn't mean that the analyst or the coach has to give that all that information to the players. But I, I think the biggest problem in cricket teams is uh, even the players know a lot of stuff, but they think all the players know what they know. So due diligence, getting the information out there and getting them talking. I mean, for bowlers, um, the, the most important thing realistically is where is the hole. Every batsman has a hole in their technique. Um, there's a part in their technique where they don't smash the ball, where they do smash the ball. So you almost start there, I think, if you're talking to bowlers. And if you're talking to batsmen, you're really talking about variations more often than not. If you're an off spinner, we know roughly where you're going to pitch the ball. Uh, but we need to know if you've got an arm ball or whether you occasionally bowl leg spin or whether you bowl a knuckleball or, or whatever that, that sort of thing is. So if you get a chance, those are the sort of the key things that I think every cricket team should or, uh should be going into with with that kind of information, and that's really where you start um, the the analysis from as much as possible. Where where can we bowl to this person that will you know in a test match? Where can we get them out in a T Twenty game? Where can we stop them scoring? Um, and when when this guy bowls, what what is what is the ball he's going to bowl that is different than all the other balls? Um, is is basically what a batsman wants to know. Mm. And that that as a philosophy can be extended across. To, to any level of the game, having those open conversations and sometimes ones which require the players to be a little bit vulnerable in saying, by talking about what the other team can do, we might be revealing areas where we think we might we might be be potentially bettered or, or, or weaker than them. But the way of finding that solution to it is, of course, by the, sh- the shared wisdom. And if there's some data involved um, at the professional level or if it's just sort of a bit of nous and looking at the play cricket, the further down we go, I think that as a as a principle applies really well. Now, as we move towards um, t- to wrapping up, I, I, I don't think we can, I suppose, go on too much longer, given it's the 23rd of March 2020 and before we started uh, our conversation we had the news from the PM that we're effectively in in this country now going to um to well yeah they haven't called it a lockdown but it's it's pretty much to that effect um in your line of work then of course pointing out the obvious reliant on there being live sport which we don't have at the moment what's what's that feeling like for you at the moment how are you getting through this uncertainty yeah, I suppose the, the very basic um, thing is, you talked about this the start that I'm a blogger, I I don't rely on live sport as much as other people. Um, I was a blogger, really, and then I became a feature writer. So two of my main sort of, and even data writing is, is looking at the past more than the future. Um, so I went, I you know, I did lose, I've lost four months of work off, off, off straight away would be my guess because I don't think we're playing cricket in the next four months. Ha- I happily be wrong, but uh, looking at the state of the world and everything that's going on, I'd be shocked if we're playing professional sport in four months' time. Um, so straight away I lost four months of work there, uh, plus who knows how much further. But then it didn't, then did come back to me that, you know, Crick Info, for instance, you know, they started contacting me. I don't work for them anymore. I'm just a freelancer now. They started contacting me, and the reason they got in touch was 
because I have the ability to, to create other things. Um, and so uh, they've got they, they've got a bunch of uh, pieces that I'll be doing now. Uh, talk, talk Sport uh, literally is a live radio station uh, about sport that no longer has any sport. So they've got in touch with me and said, what can you create for us? So I think it, for me, there's a lot of timeless questions that we don't get a chance to do. So I had this big list of pieces that I wanted to write, but you don't get a chance. You go on a tour and you have to write about what's going on in front of you and you know then their news item drops and you write about that um so i i think for me the issues of of the game uh, of how it's run of how it's got to where it is of why we have certain playing styles all those sorts of things are still available to write about so i think there's actually quite a lot to do um but if you've been trained in only knowing how to go to a game write a match report write up a press conference and write an opinion piece based on the last game uh, it might be a little bit tougher, but if you're a uh, failed screenwriter uh, who has ended up as a sports writer, uh, this is this is almost my golden time. Um, the biggest problem for me is that, like everyone else, uh, my kids are back at home. Uh, my wife's still working from home. Um, so at the moment, I'm trying to balance looking after a pregnant wife who's working from home while also homeschooling a five and seven-year-old while working for ESPN, TalkSport, and trying to start up a, a podcast network. So it's more hours in the day that I'm struggling with at the moment um, than the other way. But yeah, I've got a lot of friends who just keep contacting me going, what do I do? Um, that, there's that huge void. Um, and, and I could see that because, you know, it, it is 90, 90% of what we do is literally watch sport and cover sport. Mm. And this is a completely different world that a lot of people have gone into. It just happens to be for someone like me that I was, uh, you know, already maybe uh, better suited to cover it. Uh, than everyone else. Not that I'm not missing sport. I still wake up every morning and open my phone looking for the cricket and the basketball scores, only to be reminded that there uh, there's none. Mm. Your 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 example of 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 the kind of the niche that you have and the the areas that you look at reflecting on on the 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 past of cricket and pieces that you've you've wanted to write for so long. I think is something that. Everyone needs to to try to think in those kind of ways at the moment. And yes, we've got so much turmoil and strife. And of course, some people will be very badly affected by it, whether it be their own health, that of people close to them or their livelihoods. But for a lot of people who do have things which have insulated them to some extent, this is really something if we've got to try and spin it positively at time for, for opportunity. So it might not be people are able now to go out and, and it might not be writing, it might not be going through something like that, but it could be something that they've been putting off, a particular hobby they've always wanted to do, but now they've just pretty much got the internet and the laptop in front of them, it might be the opportunity to do that. And I know some people listen and think, oh, you know, it's not as easy as just flicking it like that. But your attitude, I, I, I've picked up all the way through this has been that the opportunities haven't been ones that you've sat by, sat down and waited for them to come to you. You've kind of gone out and got them, which always sounds a little bit cheesy, a little bit um, kind of, uh, you know, American kind of dream aspect. But I think that is a really important thing for people to, to take take note of at the moment and see what can I make of this situation rather than just what's the situation going to make of me. Now, you've talked about the podcast there. Um, just tell us a little bit about, about them and where people can, can start to access them. Yeah, they're big projects I've been trying to get up for quite a while. Um, cricket podcasts are kind of weird. There's a lot of independent podcasts out there, but they, um, it's very hard to get the sort of the major 
uh, cricket playing places to pick them up. Like the Guardian will have one just for the Ashes, and then it sort of disappears again. So I, uh, I've had these sort of ideas on the back burner. So the first one was just literally there's so many great issues and stories in cricket, and people write these incredible pieces about them or live these incredible um, lives in cricket and uh, they just sort of disappear and I, and I thought it would be fairly simple to uh, sort of pick off my friends one by one um, and get them to talk about different um, uh, aspects of how they played the game or um, you know a story that they've written about so I got you know Barney Rone is coming on to talk about his Jofra Archer piece I got uh, Paul Radley who's a United Arab Emirates cricket writer who uh, has covered the uh, he covered their world T20 qualifier when that five of their players so 33% of their squad was sent home for match fixing uh, during a tournament which is an, an extraordinary thing to have happen and, you know little things like that I got Tamal Mills coming on to talk about being a freelance cricketer so that that's the first one that's called Red Inca uh, that has just gone live, although I'm not sure the first episode is quite up, but we have a website um, at, at the very least for it. And then another one that I've wanted to do for ages, I wrote a book about the history of Test Cricket. And, you know, I really liked the book, uh, but I wanted to delve deeper into some of the pro- uh, in some of the topics. And so I've got a podcast series on the history of Test Cricket coming up. Oh, sorry, the history of cricket, really, not Test Cricket. Um, and that's called Double Century. So that will be up shortly. And then I've got a couple of other ones. Uh, one that's a general sports podcast uh, that I've been working on for ages. I've actually sold it to two major companies. And then, unfortunately, for, for reasons beyond my control, it sort of disappeared um, from them. Um, so I've just it's just been something I've been sort of holding in my back pocket. And suddenly uh, the whole world uh, needs podcasts because we have no live sports. So I thought I'll bring that back out. And the other one is Andy Zaltzman and I. Um, we have had an on-again, off-again cricket podcast for, I don't know, maybe five years at this point. And uh, so we, uh, we, I sent him a message today saying, you know, do you want to get the band back together? And he said, yeah. So, you know, all, all very different podcasts, three of which about cricket, one vaguely about sport, but not so much about um, uh, sport specifically. And uh, it's just getting them out there and, um, I'll, you know, hopefully... Uh, growing, growing them into a bit of a network, and uh, getting different voices on over and over again, and talking about different topics, and you know, very different kinds of podcasts. So uh, we set up a Patreon actually, um, because uh, I, when I lo- when I lost the three or four months' work straight away, I was like, I'm actually now going to have to find some money, and uh, also I wanted to pay the guy who was helping produce the podcasts and and all that sort of stuff. So um, luckily, a lot of people have got together, and it's look, there's a lot of freelancers in every aspect of life um, struggling uh, but most of them I've got a lot of friends I used to work in the travel industry and I now work in the sport industry and those two industries if you're a freelancer in those it's 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 very bleak at the moment um, so you know hope, hoping that we can build something with this podcast network and then that that, that eventually maybe we can sell to advertisers or um, uh, to organisations and do it that way, and then you know maybe get help some other podcasters out as well. Sure. Well, they'll be welcome additions. I think the the concepts of them sound really intriguing, and based on our conversation that we've had this evening, I think there's 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 plenty of ways in which um, people can get their teeth into the kind of things that that you're interested in in the sport and also the way that you present them and your enthusiasm just comes across so vividly. So I really appreciate your, your, your time this evening, Jared. Um, I'll put a link up on um, all the social media that's linked to this uh, podcast episode for the Patreon, for the podcasts and so on. But um, for now, I'll just say stay well, stay safe um, and good luck with everything when things get back to normal.
No problem. So I hope everyone stays safe and, and stays at home. Yes. <laughs> Cheers, Jared. Thank you. Thank you.